welcome to the first episode of Experimental Practice. I'm your host, Silo Radovsky. Today's episode is really special to me, not just because it's the first episode, but because it's a conversation with Miranda Mellis, who was really my first writing teacher or the first teacher with whom I came to see myself as a writer. Miranda has published in many genres and at the intersections of these genres, including fiction, nonfiction, cultural criticism, poetry, and other mediums. She is also faculty at the Evergreen State College, which is where I met Miranda when I was a cynical and fairly driftless college student in my early 20s. Miranda's holistic approach to creativity and her generous curiosity allowed for both attention to the world and to the self in ways that I had basically given up on finding at that point, and I plunged right into writing with her uh, under her tutelage. A decade later, what she taught me still continues to ground my practice, and I always think about kind of her approach to writing as a way of waking up to the world or staying awake to it. I can't think of a better way to start this podcast series than with this conversation, not because Miranda has influenced me so much, but because she's somebody who brings just such radical openness to her work and to her teaching in a way that makes everything feel worthy of consideration and makes writing and being alive feel just endlessly tangled up in each other. Those are exactly the kinds of connections that I'm excited to explore here. So this podcast exists to consider the connections between creativity and daily life, and then also the pragmatic work of making space for it, particularly when you're living with limitations, your mind works in ways that might be sort of classified as less conventional, your creative goals are less conventional, or there's more ambiguity in what it is that you're trying to do. So this podcast will be released somewhat sporadically, and you can always subscribe and sign up for notifications to find out when the next episode will drop. So this specific episode was um, it was a real treat to be able to explore how a mentor of mine came to their own writing practice and some of the foundations of their own practice. So in this conversation, we explore questions like how or why Miranda started writing, what motivates her to write, how she stays engaged with her values through writing, and um, how she approaches the relationship between critical thinking and literary form. We, we talk about time travel in prose, and we also talk a, a good amount about the relationship between Buddhism and creative writing. I really loved this conversation. I got so much out of it, and I hope that you will enjoy it as much as I did. Just a few brief notes before we do dive in. So Miranda shared two manuscripts with me before we met, both of which were unpublished at the time and which framed or grounded our conversation. Since we spoke, the chapbook, The Revolutionary, is now published and available from Albion Books, and you can find it through the link in the show notes. And the novella Crocosmia is under contract with Nightboat. Nightboat Books now um, and is scheduled to come out in 2025. This conversation was recorded outside. So we met in early September when it was warm and pleasant, and we sat in a uh, 
out on the edge of the forest near where Miranda lives um, in Olympia on unceded Fox and Island land. So the audio is a little imperfect because it was recorded outside, but the flip side is that there are some fun forest noises peppered in, so some bird sounds, and then if you listen closely, you may hear the creek in the background. So that's a little bit about this episode, and with no further ado, here is my conversation with Miranda Millis. Miranda, I'm really excited to be having this conversation with you. Um, yeah, I talk about things you've told me in kind of a teaching setting all the time. Um, and so it just feels very kind of like a fun milestone to be able to sit down and have this conversation about your work and what you're working on. So... Um, yeah, to start out, I would like to invite you just to tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on. Um, yeah, what projects you have underway. I am most currently working on a short story um, called The Poet of Quarantine which is about quarantine and being sick with COVID and, um, but is also about um, kind of the emotional breakdown of quarantine Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and um, also is in conversation with the poetics of space, the Bachelard who writes in that beautiful book about small spaces he writes beautifully about shells as homes, seashells, and he writes about drawers and kind of cellular, um, microcosmic kind of domains. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think in quarantine, one of the experiences we have in quarantine, those of us who have been in quarantine, if you've been really locked into a room, which I was, uh, happened to be a small room. And, um, but it was a small room, very full of stuff. Like mm-hmm. I happened to be in the, when I got COVID, I happened to be in um, the room that was my grandfather's writing room. He was a writer, a small space with very old books on the shelves and lots of dust and <laughs> dead flies and cobwebs and, Um, so I spent so much time in that room just looking around because I was, you know, there's that period of time where you can't really focus. It's hard to read Mm -hmm. and you become very cat-like and you, (laughs) you know, you just nap and you lie in bed and you look around and I didn't have internet, um, weirdly, like I was in a situation where there was no internet. (laughs) So I looked a lot (laughs) at the walls, which had like shadows on them flickering shadows and I watched them like they were these little shadow films of Mm -hmm. of reflecting the leaves of the trees outside and I listened to the sounds of other people's voices and I um, became very familiar with every nook and cranny of this room and I then started feeling better and I just started reading the books in the room and it was um, but anyway so the story is sort of about that um, and about kind of and it speculates in its fictive way about 
the moment of transmission mm-hmm. of kind of getting the virus and then becoming a vector for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'm trying to get a little granular about some of the psychodynamics of kind of um, the experience of getting the virus, even though you've done everything you can to try not to, and then what it's like to give it to other people, and then what it's like to be kind of taken care of but locked in a room. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And in, in a way that is not, you know, that is can become contemplative, but also very anguish, anguishing. Yeah. Um, And then, so that's been good because I'm just sort of like processing that experience of illness and isolation. Um, And also airports, thinking about airports, because I'm pretty sure I got it in an airport. Mm. Um, And... I'm now feeling quite phobic about like I never want to get on another airplane ever yeah. again. Um, and then I'm and then so that's in progress. And then I'm work. I've, as you know, have written um, something called the Revolutionary, mm-hmm. which is um, has elements of memoir and elements of aphorism and elements yeah. of poetry and elements of prose, and is thinking about um, a kind of among other things, a meditation on being with my father through his, the end of his life and with him as he died. Um, and then finally, I've written this novella, Crocosmia, um, which is, I think, mostly done. Yeah, it seemed so to <laughs> and me. And you've read it, so you, and I'm really excited about it and kind of, it's been... Um, it's been preoccupying for a while, you know, this kind of like trying to respond to the omni crisis with writing, you know, and think about taking seriously um, the exhortation from Jameson of so long ago that we need utopias and um, to try to imagine how I could write that without eliding violence and to think about the idea of a kind of fruitful or honest or integrous violence, like a kind of violence that, I mean, the whole crux of the thing of like, how do you imagine an, a nonviolent assassination or something? And then this yeah. notion of imagining that the the forms of those who would who would be the objects of the fantasy of assassination could be seen as compost and as actual material matter that could nourish something and and that whole concept of the novel of kind of um, maybe some people who are inordinately harmful profoundly harmful are could be really, um, could become nutrients in a different context. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's like my way of trying to reconcile, like on the one hand, my incredibly, like my, my violent hatred and anger mm-hmm. for these so-called world leaders, these men who are, you know, so destructive, these heads of state. And then on the other hand, my, um, 
Hmm. Abhorrence of violence. Yeah. Like, I, I hate these violent men. Why? Because of their violence. So my violence is towards their violence. So, right, so that's why I'm using yeah. this kind of, like, metaphor of the homeopathic violence or kind of this, it's not really resolvable. Mm -hmm. um, but, and there are many examples in history of these things going wrong and making things worse, but there are also examples of the opposite. Yeah. And so it's really, really, you know, it's, it's, it's a profoundly difficult question. Yeah. Your description of your quarantine story, which sounds amazing, um, and I can't wait to read, it just evokes, I feel like, this porosity in your work. So that just kind of the ways that writing is also a way of being in the world mm. um, or being in relation and kind of like having this intense curiosity, mm. this like ri rigorous creative curiosity about one's conditions. Yeah. Um, but I'm really interested in kind of the tension between the, yeah, that that pull towards violence or towards justice and also just your kind of profound sensitivity and compassion. And as your student and um, friend and fan, I've always been really curious about how Buddhism figures into kind of your your thinking or kind of the, the ways that writing may be an extension of a spiritual practice for you. I don't know if that's fair to say, but I would just be curious to hear kind of, yeah, if that rings true for you or um, how that, how your work with Buddhism or your practice um, kind of plays into your creative work. Yeah. To go back for a moment before I take that up to what you said before about kind of writing as, as a way of being, or maybe even we could say like a style of thinking or something like that, yeah. you know? Um, yes. Um, and that porosity, that kind of recognition of or openness to the ways that um, storytelling and sense-making seem to kind of arise out of experience and out of you know, start to start to take the form of ideas for poems or stories yeah. and um, that certain experiences and, and kind of assemblages of, of your life or configurations or encounters can start to kind can already start to lend themselves to that as you're experiencing them, yeah. you know, and not, not in a way that separates you, maybe even unconsciously a little bit, but, but like certainly in the midst of all my my COVID drama, I wasn't thinking about writing a story about it, but it, nonetheless, you know, I was thinking about that Bachelard book, you know? Yeah. And I was like, kind of, my, my own observations were, I wasn't exactly writing because I was far too tired, but I've, I was thinking about what I was seeing and yeah. experiencing. And then that, that, as soon as I started to get more energy, that just kind of wanted to turn into writing and, note-taking um and I that seems to me like a very like there's something maybe particular about the right the way that writers have this kind of style of thinking you know what I mean yeah that 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 
that the things that arise um, can have already start to have this narrative potential, you know, even unconsciously, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and as for the other question, maybe it's not even disconnected because I think, I mean, in a, in a very concrete sort of basic way, the practice of meditation is a practice of observation, right? And it's, and so I started meditating pretty young. Um, and, you know, my mom was chronically ill. She was disabled. And she died when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And that experience um, led me to look for what, how can I even make sense of this, you know? And by happenstance, a friend of my mom's, a dancer, when I was 14, she took me to, to a Dharma talk. She was a Buddhist. And, um, and I remember, <clears throat> this was in San Francisco in the 80s. And I remember, like, listening, and I just was, it was like one of those kind of moments, you know, human moments where you're like, finally, I'm hearing something that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this is... Yeah, and I don't remember exactly what the content of that talk was, but I do remember that sen- that feeling of kind of, okay, something is clicking into place here, you know, about f- phenomena, about the nature of things, about, you know, um, the a metaphysics or something that can allow me to sort of um, do more with what's happening than just suffer it, you yeah. know, or like... In fact, it might have even been on the Four Noble Truths. It might have, like, if anybody w- would come out and say, you know, this here is a um, sense-making philosophical <laughs> system, the first tenet of which is there is life is constituted group of suffering. You know, then immediately, of course, I would move towards that because that seemed to be absolutely my experience. <laughs> you know, and um, and but I don't really remember. Um, Anyway, yeah, and then I, I think, so I think that kind of learning to observe, to kind of witness, to let go of thoughts, to not identify, to, um, um, to understand that thinking, that there's an involuntary production of language going on and to start to disidentify with that um, and... To, is is in a, is one way of starting to have a quote unquote life of the mind, yeah. right? Like it's it's one way, um, life of the um, mindful <laughs> instead of a life of the mind or something. It's it's you know, and then just I think, yeah, and then developing patience, which that practice of the contemplative practices are they take you, as you know, into really wonderful spaces, but it takes discipline and patience, you know, and, and you don't, you don't, it doesn't happen quickly. Um, and so that's true about writing too, right? It's sort of like you can get really absorbed and have this kind of powerfully stabilizing, powerfully, um, imaginative, richly analytical experience, but not right away. You know, it's like you have to kind of, it, it takes, 
And, and I think you can develop that, of course, through writing itself or through any discipline. It doesn't have to be through any kind of contemplative practice per se. But I think they do, they probably nourish each other, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and for me, I think they were both very related in that I, I was really writing a lot at the outset and also seeking those wisdom teachings for the same reasons because of my despair about my mother um and and then that became my subject for a long time and like my you know my um many of the stories that I wrote and many of the poems were really circling around always around these questions of kind of illness and death and loss and my mother and who she was and even this chapbook the revolutionary it's still, it's like, I'm still, you know, only now it's sort of more about my father's death, but it's like death, death, yeah. death, death, death. And, and even Crocosmia is, a, is, as you know, is about, in some ways about death, you know? Um, so maybe that's the connection, like between spirituality and writing is death. Yeah. <laughs> it seems based on my reading of both the chapbook and the novella that you've most recently written, um, that there's also something there about the, uh, like, a- abandonment, I mm. think, or, like, one's, one's duty to the world and one's duty to oneself or one's kind of close relationships and how those things may not always align or be the same. Um, Yes, and that's that I feel like I'm grappling with much more recently um, in explicitly in both in that chapbook, the Revolutionary and in Crocosmia, the in the one in a non-fictive way, asking these questions about who the revolutionary is and why they're willing to do what they're willing to do and what the effects of that are on the immediate family and then in Crocosmium through the fiction of kind of exactly that abandonment where the the daughter, um, I mean, it's really grandiose in a way. It's like this messianic story, right? Where the daughter loses the mother because the mother is saving the world. Yeah. And the relationship with the daughter has to be sacrificed. Um, And the daughter um, is that, figure that you're talking about. So it's a kind of a split, you could say a split um, consciousness in a way, but the daughter is that figure who would, in a way, um, rather have her mother back than have the world be saved because, you know, and so there's that sense of kind of, it's very exaggerated, of course, but there's something, and, and, and you could even say possibly judeo-christian right? <laughs> like you know that there's that that in this in in that mythology in the christian mythology the son is sacrificed you know um in this one the mother is the mother sacrifices her relationship with her daughter she's she sacrifices in a way herself um and the daughter is is left to pick up the pieces and try to make sense of it all and um that is Certainly, you know, um, that's definitely redolent of 
that's redolent of my relationship with my mother for sure, who was a revolutionary and, um, the sense that, that she sacrificed everything and that's not true, right? Yeah. That's the, that's a, that's an aspect that is something that, um, it becomes allegorical material to work with. It has truth in it. It's not the entire truth. It felt as though she did that, that she sacrificed everything to try to save the world, you know? Yeah. And including her health. And, um, but there are many contingencies, many, many, many factors, and it's so complex how, you know, as, as you say, and as you know, like each individual body and all its complexity, ancestral and otherwise, like how and why it becomes ill or when it does, um, is so, how one person can withstand so many traumas and so many difficulties and not get sick and another can, you know, I mean, these things are so complicated and genetic, but also environmental and psychological as well as, you know, social and political. Um, but I reduce it down because, because I'm still trying to kind of unpack, um, you know, the kind of extremity in a way of it all, <laughs> you know, cause yeah. it was, it was, it, it, you know, it's like one thing to grow up with a mom who's disabled and sick and needs care. And then to grow up with a mom who also, um, did the kinds of things that my mom did politically, yeah. which was, you know, to engage in clandestine, um, you know, underground, political activism um, and the extent to which that kind of work was a joy for her and a pleasure for her, I think is that's there, you know, and the extent to which it was like also very dangerous and stressful. Yeah. Um, I can't know all of that. You know, I, there are stories that I can hear from people she worked with who are still with us and their perspectives, but it's, very partial. So I, in a way, I guess what I'm saying in this roundabout way is like, um, you know, it's not that her life or my life or your life or anybody's life is a fiction, but, (laughs) but there's something where it's sort of like, how can you understand a person who is not here to give an account? Um, and even if they were, it would always be partial um, and you kind of are patching together something, a story, and you, you, I guess you sort of decide to make sense of the important relationships in your life when you're left on your own to try to make sense of them because the people aren't there anymore, um, with, by, in accordance with your own, the ways in which you've been affected by them, right? Yeah. And that, so that's the kind of then that becomes the emphasis and how much it has to do with that person is a different question, you know? Mm. Like, it's not, it's not like, it's something very different to say, I'll write a biography of a person and I'll do all the research I can and I'll find out as much as I can about them and I'll, I'll tell their story with as much um, faithfulness to who I understand them to have been. 
is very different than to say, I'm going to, you know, I'll make a fiction, which is working through the prism of my own experience of what I, how I've been impacted by this relationship. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's not, and that's the glory of fiction, right? Yeah. It's like, it doesn't have to be faithful or documentary or, you know, it's a dream. It's like, I'm having a lifelong dream about my mother. <laughs> I never stopped dreaming about her. Yeah. You know. You write really beautifully in The Revolutionary about the revolutionary kind of as a character who's a time traveler, kind of like bringing the future to the the present, ideally, or um, living in the present towards the future. Um, And in that ideal future, their behavior ceases to be revolutionary and just becomes ordinary. Um, But in the context of kind of what is considered normal, it's uh, like kind of on, it's otherworldly, you know, it it lives as if, um, you know, something was possible or true that isn't. Uh, And so I feel like there's that quality in your writing, particularly your fiction of just intense, uh, like willingness to speculate um, or to say things that feel so true like crystal clear, but just kind of embedded in this narrative structure that enables that kind of clarity, like the absurdity of uh, living in a context that is destroying kind of the habitat and the ways that that is normalized and how that's so dislocated in your writing. Um, But the narrative structure of your work is so... Uh, I would say ecological as well and kind of the, all of these parts fitting together and um, kind of being subverted in, in any singular focus, like prismatic in structure. And I would, um, I would love to hear about your process of kind of creating those shapes. Um, it's probably not just one thing all the time, but maybe there's a recent example of starting with a seed of an idea and kind of shaping the structure of narrative from that. Yes. Well, I think that that idea that you mentioned about the time traveler is relevant to this question um, because that kind of notion or idea or conceit is also, is present, as you say, in the revolutionary as just a kind of, um, you know, as saying this kind of idea of how we know that what is perceived as kind of radical in one um, moment in time when it's no longer perceived that way that we could say, you know, um, if it's an instance of historical um, change that is in the direction of, of revolutionary change, that when it becomes, then, then you know that it's been, that it's kind of achieved its goal, this kind of notion of sort of that, that, that revolutionary being from the future um, is also present in Crocosmia mm-hmm. and it's present in the concepts and the story, but also in the structure, I think, yeah. in the narrative form. And, and that wrestling with time is always there, right? In storytelling, in writing, with even at the level of, you know, just syntax of tense, you know, how will you you're always wrestling with, you know, the subjunctive, you know, as well as the past tense and the present tense and the question of like, 
what is the now and um, who's speaking and are they, sp and, and even if you have a fixed tense and this is in the past tense as most narratives often are, or usually it seems like, um, there's still the question of like when you're in the consciousness of characters that they're thinking in the present moment of their kind of temporality or when they're thinking forward to possible things because characters are thinking about every consciousness is, you know, moving between tenses and temporalities. So you always have to kind of struggle with that when you're, when you're writing and it's hard, I find. It's hard. It's hard, especially if you're interested in kind of trying to prefigure work prefiguratively. And I guess that would be like, the, that's the word that came to mind when you were speaking. It's like, um, the revolutionary comes from the future. They are prefigurative in their embodiment, in their activity, in their way of being, um, in their insistence on a, on a different, on a different world. Um, and, and that's maybe distinct from like prefigurative art or prefigurative writing, right? Like that, uh, the person who lives as that time traveler, which is what I would say my mom and my parents and the yeah. community I grew up in was like, um, living collectively, um, and living, you know, sort of not solely in a theoretically anti-capitalist way, but actually living in the day-to-day, -day, um, in this mode of opposition. And, um, and so, Maybe in some ways growing up in that kind of a, around that, you know, while also in still like existing in the larger, you know, sort of social economic system of capitalism um, creates a disjunctive experience of kind of um, double, doubleness. Yeah. Um, and so I think the kinds of things that people experience when they, when they migrate to, when they immigrate or when, um, people live through wars and kind of all these different kinds of experiences where there's a sense of doubleness, you know, um, different temporalities intersecting or kind of tra traversing. And so maybe in some ways then it feels sort of like certainly growing up the way that I did and feeling like very much, even in San Francisco in the 70s and 80s, very much the outlier, um, my siblings and I, and, and you know, nobody else seemed to live the way that we, that we lived that we knew, you know? Um, and again, even in, even in that kind of cultural time and space of so much counterculture and things like that, none, none of my friends in school or anything, none of the kids I knew had that kind of household. Their parents weren't mili militant. Well, they didn't live collectively. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They lived, they lived with their mom or their mom and dad, or that was it. Right. You know, maybe their grandma or something like that. Or, um, they didn't live in a, in a house full of organizers. Yeah. And so I, maybe in some ways uh, that sense of doubleness of kind of living in the time of the future being fought for and aspired to in the household while also living in the, in the kind of consensus time of um, U.S. kind of post-60s coming into Reagan moving into neoliberal capital kind of um, time has just f formed this sense of, of writing 
like it's it's hard to find something like what you might call a sense of naturalism or realism for me I just don't know what that is (laughs) you know what I mean like I just don't cellularly know what that is (laughs) because it's just it's it's always multiplicity you know um and but nonetheless, I'm interested in, in telling stories about the world. So. I know, that's the challenge. It's like being somebody who thinks about a hundred things at the same time, but wants to give a reader some experience that feels approximately cohesive yeah. in its disjointedness, Yeah, for me at least. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking um, recently when I was working on this story about the quarantine, I was like, what I think I want to do is just write and as ordinary a manner as I can possibly manage um, and see if I, and while, while also staying interested, of course that's, there's no reason to do it if you're not interested. Right. Um, And that's been kind of fun to, to take as an approach, you know, Um, like. Yeah. What does that, what does that look like for you? Maybe how does it differ from. Maybe it differs in like, well, for one thing, it's easier to do with short stories because there's just less to manage. And it's sort of like, you know, a a short story can just be a kind of gesture and um, there's there's less chronology to manage. Um, And so I think what it looks like right now is that there's a kind of psychological chronology it's, you know, the experiential chronology that is imitative or mimetic of the days of the quarantine. Yeah. And, uh, and that kind of arc of the illness has a natural chronology um, because, you know, the illness is acute and then it gets better and then it gets worse and then it gets better and then it's, it gets worse but not as bad. And, you know, it has its kind of... And then the arc of it to my great good fortune, and obviously this is tragically not the case for everybody, is that I did get better, you know, and some people don't and they get worse and it stays with them and that's a different kind of time. I mean, the time of illness, you know, there's something about illness that is like, um, you know, for some people it's, it's, like to even call it illness, if you're chronically ill, right, it's kind of like, is this illness or what is this? You yeah. Know? Because this is just my, my state of being. This is where I'm at. You know, this is my physicality. This is my somatic experience. But I think if you get ill and then you get better, um, there is something very oddly like, I found that getting ill in this way was like felt like a homecoming it was so weird I mean it was so painful and and upsetting all of it but there is something like I'm speculating maybe you can say something about this silo but I feel like there's I'm speculating about this and it's a new thought about the ways in which sometimes getting sick can be this way of going home it's kind of a weird thing to say and it's it's a problematic thing to say because some people don't get to get well yeah um 
So I don't know where to go. <laughs> I just, I know that when I, when maybe it's sort of put it this way, it's sort of like certain kinds of ordeals force you to route through and confront things that you otherwise have been possibly repressing or bracketing. And it can take the form of an illness, a death, a breakup, a move, you know, these kinds of things um, where you really, it's inescapable. You have to face fear. You have to face anger. You cannot not face it, you know. Um, and maybe that, there's something about that that maybe is what I mean when I say about coming home where it's like, and then when you, if you come through it, if you can come through it because you're, you have support or whatever, um, it's like something, maybe then it's like coming back again in some way, you know, coming back to what? I don't know. It reminds me of what Eirik Steinhoff, uh, another important mentor of mine at Evergreen and your partner, uh, said about crises all the time as this kind of opening, thinking about what is possible at a turning point um, and kind of what porosity, being vo- physically vulnerable, enables. Yeah. And, and, and the revelations and realizations that can come with getting what we don't want. Yeah. You know, if we're, if we're supported enough. I mean, I think there's a, just a crucial difference between the kind of trauma of getting what we don't want without the support to recover from it um, and not. And, yeah. But I think that kind of, you know, for example, when what are the times in our life when kindness becomes incredibly important, you know? It becomes everything. Yeah. Nothing else matters, you know? Kindness and care is all that matters. And what that teaches us, Yeah. you know, about when, when the heart is just hungry and in so much need in a way that, you know, can, we can forget about in, in other times, right, and become almost callow about, um, and then the sense of kind of, you know, what it means for so many people to be in a situation, in situations where they don't have the support, that they, they might be in that state of absolute vulnerability and, and need without the most important Provisioning of kindness, you know. Yeah. Um, shelter, safety. I mean, when you're when you're in isolation and you can't leave the room, you rely on others. Your dependency is brought home to you. You need others to bring you food, water. You need their kindness. You need their care. And in some ways, you know, I think as children, if you're well taken care of, you can take that for granted. But when you become when you become an adult and you're used to providing for yourself and being autonomous, it's something else to to be reminded, you know, of your dependency. Is it in Crocosmia that you speak of the or, the the miraculous as ordinary? Does that come up in Crocosmia, or was it in the Revolutionary? I can't remember. But you say something about that and. Um, yeah, I was just struck by that. It's something I think about, like not trying to take for granted the ordinary mm-hmm. to see the miracle in it. 
Um, and in terms of kind of the experience of going through something that does provide this kind of tidy narrative scaffold upon which to explore things that are less um, clear cut and yeah. tidy themselves. Yeah. That are even chaotic. And, yeah. Um, but there could, that there could just be something, something in there, you know, that there, even if it's just an image or, you know, um, uh, some kind of punctum, something that strikes you, you know, of your own experience or something you witness that gives you so much to think about and work with, you know, like that sense of, um, that I felt when I was going through my isolation and I, when I realized just because all I could do was lie there and think because I didn't have, you know, energy to, to read for a while. And then I also didn't have access to internet, whatever. Um, that I realized the hunger for kindness was so physical. Yeah. Um, and I was surrounded by it, but it, it wasn't that I was missing it, you know. It was more that I could really, I could phys- almost physically take it in like food. Yeah. And that heightened quality. And that's sort of what the then, like, I wanted to write about in the story because... I think we can talk about compassion and kindness, and we should, and we can, but it's really, it's quite something when you feel compassion as almost like a palpable physical substance <laughs> that you feel in yourself and you feel coming from others, you know, and and I guess, you know, that notion of heart opening, you know, it's really, it's there's a deliciousness to that, and I think a clarity, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I, an ability to see others clearly. I think it's hard to always see each other clearly. Don't you think that? I think often it can be hard to, to see each other. Yeah, this, this just kind of brings me back to what you'd said about meditation and mindfulness practice or contemplative practice and... Um, Like, I think in academic circles, there is this sense that clarity is sharp, Mm. potentially mean and cutting, Um, certainly not just in academic circles. But I think that this is one thing that I really learned from you as a teacher is what kindness lets you see. Mm. You know, when you kind of let that seed take hold of mm. seeing the potential in something. Yeah. Yeah, that that seeing clearly isn't just cutting things down, but actually seeing what's there mm. and its richness. Mm. Yeah. That's really heartwarming to hear. Thank you for yeah. that. That's very gratifying. I think that's so insightful too, you know, that we're kind of trained to think of clarity as criticality, um, problem identification problem solving, taking things apart. Um, and maybe, and we do need that. We need that yeah. kind of um, quantitative or calculating kinds of clarity or something technical. But the kind of clarity I feel like I'm talking about is, you know, um, that somebody can feel 
as if behind some kind of veil or something like that. And then with compassion, the veil can lift and you can sort of see, um, I don't know, it's like as if some person or being is disclosed, disclosing itself or is, um, and I think that, can, that then connects with like the ability to kind of cherish and value and care for, right? Like, um, and not dismiss, you know, whether it's a tree or a forest or an animal or a person, a relative, a friend, a stranger, to, it becomes impossible to dismiss the kind of, the life and the autonomous, um, mysteriousness and vitality of 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 that you know yeah it's a different kind of doubling or holding holding conflicting things right because writing is so intensely critical and as you discussed like there's this kind of um a tremendous amount of of intellectual complexity and and structural and narrative complexity that you have to grapple with to write something, anything, and especially something that doesn't kind of hew the lines of what's expected of a traditional narrative. But the, the source of compassion, I think needs to first kind of also get turned on oneself in that process and, and being able to kind of hold kindness. Yes. In order to create something that also cohabitates with that critical thinking. Yes. Or can kind of be born through it. Yes. Yes having that generosity and patience. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like all these ethical dispositions that we think about as being operating in in a relationships and the social as being applicable to the creative process and to writing itself, right? That the the very same the very same virtues of patience, courage. Yeah, all these things you're describing. And then also kind of the otherness of what you're making, right? Which is another part of, like, we've studied, you know, glissant and the poetics of relation and kind of opacity, right? And that um, in the opacity, not just of the other and the, the but of the, the otherness of your own writing and of your own self, right? And of the not knowing of it, of your own kind of don't know where this is going, don't know exactly what this is. And even maybe when I'm, when it's complete, I won't, I may not know, you know, I, I, I can only enter into a relation with it, you know, and stay kind of faithful to it or something. And, um, in the same way that we would, that Glissant would say, you know, like, um, I, I, I am not, I don't require the other to be legible and recognizable and apprehensible in, in some familiar way for me to honor and, be in relation and, um, and, you know, offer and be offered mutual reciprocity, um, without any kind of, without any fantasy of, um, completeness and assimilation and all of that, you know, it seems very, very applicable really to writing poetics yeah I think even just on a practical yes and on like a very practical level of just being able to finish or write something I think sometimes that like for me 
really seeing my narrator as somebody different than me, mm-hmm. kind of the, the person who walks around in the world when writing nonfiction even, especially, I think, actually. Um, are you familiar with Shogyong Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, Pema Chodron's teacher, kind of brilliant and controversial Buddhist leader? Um, I found this book at the library called Cynicism and Magic, which was a um, early lectures at Naropa, sort of transcribed. And the Q&As were phenomenal in the back uh, of each or at the end of each chapter. And one of the chapters or one of the lectures was about poetry and writing. And I think something that I've struggled with is feeling like it, as I kind of lean into learning more about mindfulness and kind of the illusion of, of this reality in a way, what that means about pursuing a career in writing or kind of putting things out there in the world that are solidified and kind of exist as a text. Um, and a student asked a question or an attendee of the lecture about ego. Like when the student had this dilemma, of like I feel like when I'm most saying what I want to say, I'm writing from the place of ego. And um, uh, Shogyang Trungpa Rinpoche's response was that it sort of doesn't matter whether you're writing from ego or not ego if you're saying something very kind of accurate and specific to your experience. And you don't have to grasp to get people to relate to it. You'll find that people just kind of do and that there's something like really beautiful in that, which was completely not what I was expecting <laughs> to find in there. Um, but yeah, that just kind of has been circling in my mind as, as you've been speaking. Yeah. And yeah, I, you know, I went to Naropa. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. I, for under the, the second, I transferred there as an undergrad. So I went there for two years and, um, like, I think I was there 99, 2000 or 2000, 2001. I was there when nine eleven happened actually. Really? Um, yeah. So I, 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 um, am, familiar with those archives that you're talking about um and um also of course with Trungpa Rinpoche who's one of the co-founders along with Ann Waldman and um Allen Ginsberg and I did the writing and literature program there um and I think the the kind of um syncretic or um yeah maybe syncretic weave of Tibetan philosophy, Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, um, which I don't know if this is still the case, but when I went there, Naropa was the kind of, I think we really the only college in the country where, you know, you could study Tibetan Buddhist philosophy and um, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, It was, to my knowledge, the only Buddhist college in the country. but that syncretism between that and the kind of the writing lineages, which include not just New York School and Beat, but also what Ann Waldman would call um, like a kind of outlier and magpie kind of modes of writing and also, you know, deep ecology, feminist writing, um, language, poetry, you know, so many 
new narrative, so many intersecting mm-hmm. lineages being considered and taught there and kind of dipped in the, in the, in the medium of, of um, Buddhism and kind of worked with alongside, you know, like people doing this, this kind of, um, Madhyamaka, you know this this syllogistic de- studying the syllogistic debate form of the of the of Tibetan philosophy. This kind of r- rigorous forms of um, thought that are um, that that kind of lead to undoing clinging um, and conceptual conceptuality um, right alongside kind of working in these um, in these literatures of the contemporary you know um and so um i think that and then and then of course at that college there's also psychology programs and um that kind of response to the question from the student about like writing from ego or um that makes sense to me that that he would respond that way like that there is you know this because i'm and also you know i think like the 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 kind of notion the framework of ego id super ego right is coming out of the very very specific kind of um western kind of um, image and theory of mind, right? That particular division. And I think that the, the Tibetan philosophical, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but tradition has, you know, you could say like, if there's three parts to the mind in the Western psychological, there's probably 10,000 in the Tibetan, <laughs> you know, like it's so much more intricate and complex. And the kind of, the, the psychology is, you know, much older, um, much, much older and, and more, and the basis of a practice of observation of the mind over yeah. thousands of years. So the, the systems are just, yeah. So, so I, I think in a way the notion of an ego, the e, the ego or an ego is a little bit of a, it feels a little bit of like a bludgeon or something. It's like, well, what do we mean when we say that? Yeah. Right. Like, um, are we talking about competitiveness? Are we talking about desire? Are we talking about narcissism? Are we talking about strong sense of self? Are we talking about ambition? Are we talking about, um, you know, like there's, and then, and then are we talking about in a mo- from moment to moment, which of these things might be arising and why, depending on the given conditions, whether it's the presence of a certain kind of relationship or um, a pattern of, from childhood, right? Like, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So sort of how do you even, like, how do you even respond? One way to respond to, I think, would be to say, the ego is not a problem. It's just not. You it's know? hard to get away from. You just need it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, like, that would be the psychoanalytic view, you know? Um, 
you have to have it. But I think that it gets confused for a kind of, um, I think it gets confused for competitiveness. Yeah. And for ambition, you know. And then, and, and then it becomes kind of confusing because it's, it's, it's imprecise, you know. Yeah. On that note of kind of competitiveness and ambition, especially in literary spaces, um, I feel like you've always modeled for me this really intense kind of collectivity in your writing practice and in the way that you engage with writing community. Um, I would love to learn more of your thoughts about just kind of the, the practical work of being a writer um, in this situation that is so highly competitive, what you do to stay grounded in your work or what kinds of challenges you kind of face maybe both in terms of relationship with the work and just the logistics of having kind of time and energy and all the other things that are needed to do that kind of thinking and creating. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um. I think that it's helpful to identify as a reader, first and foremost, especially when you're an emergent writer and you're aspiring and you're coming up and you're finding your way. It will give you breathing room. And at the same time, to have a kind of devotional attitude to your practice as a writer, to sort of say, not to say religious, <laughs> but to sort of say that the way that some people would get up every morning and pray, you'll get up every morning and write, you know, um, that it's, that you're, um, and that's because that is what you need, you know. First and foremost, that is what you need. And you don't ha kind of have to always, I don't think it's super important to know why, you know, it's a drive. Um, mm. And you just, you know that you'll start to really go awry if you don't. Like, I think some people are really called to take robes, you know, to go into seclusion or to live monastically and to spend their time in meditation and prayer. And if they don't do that, it's not going to be good. You know what I mean? <laughs> they need to do that. Mm -hmm. And you, I think we all have to figure out what we need to do, you know. And then pretty soon if we just kind of honor that and cleave closely to that, um then it, it just becomes like a, you know, a, a something that you can rely upon. Yeah. And something that you don't allow yourself to get too far away from, or you do, 
you do and then you find out what happens to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it isn't good. Yeah. <laughs> and so you like find try, out. Try for yourself and see what happens. I feel like that's Pema Chodron's thing always. Yeah. It's like, don't take it at face value. See what happens. Exactly. Yeah. Trust your own experience. I mean, that's the thing that, that, that made, that I think has made um, exploring and, and um, studying Buddhist teachings for so many people even possible this is the emphasis that from the Buddha and on down that don't take my word for it. I'm not propagandizing you. Here's these practices. Find out for yourself. And then if it's not for you, not a big deal because it's not about getting acolytes, you know? It's... These practices are liberatory, um, aren't they? Well, go see. And if they are, they are. And if they aren't, they aren't. Um, which, you know, then means you can, it, it can become an art, you know, for each person. Yeah. Who's, who's pursuing it, who's thinking with it, and, and Yeah. And, of course, one can always begin to go in more formal directions, you know, and deepening, and there are teachers who can guide on that, right? And you can take vows and take precepts and um, study those things and let them inflect and influence your life. And that is, in my experience, quite beautiful, Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, when they talk about taking refuge, you know what I mean? I think that can get deeper and deeper over time. Um, that sense of what that can mean, you know. And then, in a way, I'm going very far away from your question, I'm realizing. And I think it's interesting that it, where I'm going with your question is this kind of notion of refuge. Because... I don't think those other kind of issues that are bound up with kind of, well, they're like historical materialism, you know, they're like, it's just, these are the material conditions of, of our world, right? Competitive capitalism and all of this and lack of enough social care and all these things. Um, so, you know, making, making a living is how do you kind of bring together questions of real refuge, like actual sanctuary, material home, a roof over your head with that sense of that other sense of refuge, you know, that you find in your own, practice and in the community of practice and in, you know, um, friends and so on. It seems like there's a doubleness there. And I think, I guess I feel like your drive and your need it's a really, it's, there's no way to kind of, um, they, they kind of have to, what my father used to say, 
<laughs> Seize your evil desires and bind them unto God. <laughs> that yeah. was one of his sayings, you know. It's like we have these kind of drives and, and so on, and we don't know exactly where they come from, and they're particular to us, but they also are particular to our economic system and our culture, and um, there's energy in it, yeah. and you sort of want to harness it and not be harnessed by it, I guess. You know, so maybe having a bit of a kind of philosophical detachment which is part of what I mean by remembering that being a reader is, it's a beautiful claim. It's a beautiful identity to claim. And I think allows for some of that philosophical detachment, you know, yeah. like you can't really fail at being a reader. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And and out of being a reader comes being a writer yeah. and having a refuge of a, a practice. Um, and then out of that comes all sorts of things. But I think if you're trying to take refuge in a kind of commercial definition of success or a kind of... Um, then y you might not find refuge there. You could try. Yeah. One could try. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, it's... There's certainly a difference between like a spiritual groundlessness that's fruitful and honest and, and clear-eyed and the groundlessness of being kind of materially precarious. Yeah. But it does strike me that trying to seek grounding and kind of like spiritual grounding in the ambition of being kind of like a materially successful writer is just as much uh, maybe like hollow pursuit as like trying to seek kind of ground in like this false sense of kind of spiritual stability, that things are going to stay the same. And that there's like clear good and bad, kind of like all of these dualities that give us a sense of kind of security just as humans. Well put. Kind of like wanting that. Well put. Yeah. Right. That's it. It's like when the teachings say things like, you know, y your house may burn down, but don't like let you don't let it burn you down, you know, or th these extreme things, you know, that yeah. feel like. Um, they're not, they're not playing around, you know, they do mean like you don't have control, your plans will not go the way you think they will, things will go wrong, everything you love will disappear, everything is impermanent, loss and suffering are inherent to life. Um, all of that is true and... <laughs> so so I think you're right. I think it's like there's it we maybe it's like part of the kind of the sent the dualism that is the inheritance of Western Cartesianism or something that makes it hard to always to take that on board or something, you know, to kind of take on the truth of that, that these things are linked, um, that they're inseparable. Just as a human. <laughs> as a human. <laughs> yeah. As a human, but there's it's it just feels 
Um, it feels like a really tall order to, to ask people to um, be able to practice that non-attachment and that insight into impermanence when they don't have shelter, when they don't have enough nourishment and support, when it just feels like um, that's too much to ask. Yeah. And at the same time, it does seem as though in some ways that is what the teachings are asking, you know, like there's a kind of extremity to it that's saying, you know, um, like I remember once reading this anecdote of um, this woman, I can't remember her name, a famous elder Buddhist teacher, and she was receiving students and these two men came up to her and said, you know, these businessmen, and they said, how, she did, she, how, how do you, you've given up everything, you know, you have nothing, like, how do you manage this, you know, because she had no material possessions or belongings or anything like this and was dependent on, I guess, Donna, you know, um, and she, in the story, she just laughs and she says, I have everything, you know, mm. you have given up. You yeah. have given up everything. I, she reversed it. She basically was like, no, look at you. You are the ones who are, you know, like, I actually have everything. Yeah. You have nothing. <laughs> you know I, I mean, she didn't say it yeah. like that, but it was something along the lines of like, and I think this kind of thunderstruck moment of sort of, right, like this clinging and grasping and, you know, this worrying and, and, and holding on to... Um, to the material, yeah. In in their case, this kind of like endless, um, like the business thing, you know, endless profit seeking or something, was from her perspective to give everything up that really mattered, you yeah. know. And the doubling. This feels like a perfect place to end because, like, that doubles also with there's no kind of admonition against building things creating kind of like a livable life or a structure that can hold you. Um, and that's like not something that we can always teach ourselves how to do. And that having a teacher who can kind of give you that ability to create something, whether that is like a framework or kind of a way of being in relation to yourself that enables that openness mm -hmm. or the ability to write something that feels like it needs to be written um, so you've certainly been somebody who's kind of opened that up for me. So I'm so grateful. Uh, those teachers can also be the things that we read. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. as we wrap up, do you want to tell readers or listeners where they might find more of your work and anything that you have coming up on the horizon? Yes, I have that chapbook that you and I have been discussing, The Revolutionary, coming out from Albion Books as a chapbook. And Crocosmia, the novella, I think, also probably coming out in the next year or two. Um, and you can go to my website, and there's you can see there links to my book, Demystifications, which came out 
last year from Solid Objects um, and some other books that can be, um, that are linked there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Perfect. I'll make sure to link the website. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Miranda. This Thank was you. a real joy. Yeah.